morning, everybody. I hope you're already encouraged. Because the church is the church is a community. The church is a people. It's not just a Sunday morning gathering. It's it's life together. And sometimes there there are good times we get to celebrate. We get to send out. We get to be encouraged when they come back into the body and give a good report. And sometimes it's bittersweet when we're sending someone away permanently. We get to see the reflection of that. Um, now in our lives, as we saw through the book of Acts and Paul as he went out, and sometimes he returned, but there was a time when he, he never was going to return. And so um, those times are they're, they're difficult, but they're good if the Lord is in it, seeing the amazing thing that he's doing that he's walking us through. Um, so I'd encourage you to, if you're not yet, if you're looking in, if you're feeling things out, um, getting adjusted to what it means to be a part of genuine community, to plug in, to invite someone out for lunch, or to ask somebody, hey, would you, uh, would you regularly we- meet with me? Um, can I be a part of your home group? Can, can I get plugged in? Can I join in? Can I be a part of this community? Uh, because if it's just Sunday morning, it'll be nice. It'll be lovely. There'll be good teaching. There'll be good worship. You'll enter into the presence of the Lord. But uh, God wants more of that, more than just that for us. He wants genuine community. He wants us to be together, unified, walking through life, supporting one another through the ups and the downs. We are about to enter into a, the last accounting. Uh, scripturally, we call it a toledot. Um, anytime it says, and these are the generations of, that's a toledot. Uh, So we've read through quite a bit of those in Genesis, and this is the final one. We're going to be looking at the generations of Jacob. We're going to be looking at Joseph and his interesting life, and then the fall and rise of Judah within this as well. And it starts out with difficult things. Uh, As I read through this chapter, there wasn't a whole lot of real good within it. Uh, We're looking, we're rehashing a lot of the things we've already covered, the challenges that we see within Genesis, because Genesis is the book of beginnings, gives us all the problems of humanity, and the rest of Scripture recycles that over and over and over again, saying, hey, remember that thing we talked about in Genesis? It's happening again, over and over and over again. It's a repetition um, throughout humanity's time here on this earth of just not getting it. Every now and then they do. They get a good shaking. They return to the Lord, and it's great for a while. And then the generations pass, and then we return back to these poor cycles over and over again. Some of the things we've looked at within Genesis, these repeating patterns of the idea of seeing something, taking it when you shouldn't have, and the sorrow that results from it. The issue of having a favored son over others. And that can be anything with your life. Some, when we are showing favoritism, the issues with a family divided, the issues of self-justification, the issues of self-interest first, the issues we see of not seeking God in the instances of our life. And then the biggest one, that I think is the most important for us to grab onto is what God does despite all of that. Despite us, God, he moves consistently and faithfully in our lives. And so despite us, God has a way for us to stop these cycles. He'll keep reminding us over and over again, hey, you remember 
that thing that happened at the very beginning, you're doing it again now. Do you somehow think it's going to work out okay this time? Be warned. Turn away. Turn back to the Lord. It's a constant call. Turn back to the Lord. And so stopping the cycle, uh, I want Exodus 34 to kind of define how we look at this of who God is and what he understands of who we are. The Lord passed before him, him being Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Talked about this passage a little while back and the difficulty that that last line tends to have for us. And that why is the guilt of the fathers being passed on to the children? And what it's saying is the things the fathers did, the children are doing too. They're repeating the same things over and over again. The iniquity is being passed on. Those children are repeating the problems. When we look at the life of Abraham, when we look at the life of Isaac, when we look at the life of the Jacob, they had the same problems. They made the same mistakes again and again and again. And every time God gave them a wake-up call, they're like, oh, yeah. Why? Why did I do that? We look at it now through the beauty of time. We can see it all at once. We could read it in an hour on what happened to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and go, why didn't, what were they thinking? What were they doing? But then we turn and look at our life and go, wow, that was 20, 30, 40 years. Do I do the same thing in that span of time? Yes, I do. It's a reflection upon us. Not something for us to judge, but to reflect upon and look inwardly and go, ah, oh, geez, yeah, that's me too. I can return to. I should return to. So we're, we're going to quickly fly over Genesis 36. This is an accounting of Esau's descendants. It's talking about how he separated from Jacob because they didn't feel that there was enough room in the land for both of their abundance to be able to live together. So he moves over to the country that becomes called Edom. It's named that after him. He's the namesake of that country. And what's interesting to me is how abundantly blessed Esau is. Despite the fact that Jacob has the divine blessing, he is going to be the one that God's going to do this mighty work through. But it doesn't mean that Esau has nothing from the Lord. It doesn't mean that Esau has no opportunity or expectation or the ability to be a part of what's going on. Just because we are not the, the guy, we're not the girl, we're not the anointed one, doesn't mean God doesn't have something for you something amazing for you, to be a part of it. One of the things we see here, they give an account of a huge lineage of Esau. It's an honoring of this family. It's an honoring that he still has this opportunity to be a part of what God is doing if they would but continue to look to the Lord. The potential of what could be at all these outlying regions that are related to Israel, they can still be a part of what's going on. When we look at all the laws of Israel, it's not just for Israel, it's the Israel and those that sojourn with you. It's the expectation that everybody's welcome to the table. Everybody's welcome to come in and be a part of what God's doing. 
It's one law for both the native and the sojourner. Such wonderful potential for everybody to be brought in if we would just look to the Lord within it. And sadly, with this part of the family, they too wander away. The opportunity when they could be a part of what Israel's doing, when Israel comes out of Egypt and they come into the promised land and they send emissaries and they say, "Your please allow us just to walk through your country. We are your brothers and we are your kin and we're headed along. Just let us walk through. And this is that deciding moment when they can be a part of what's going on and they choose to say no. We're going to do our own thing now. You don't dare come in here. This is our space. We're going to charge our own way. We're not a part of you any longer. And this is the choice everyone has. We all get to make this choice, whether we're going to partner in with what God's doing or we're going to forge forward on our own. And history tends to repeat itself over and over and over again. It's hard, it's hard to see because we, we teach history and we see the problems and somehow we have this thought in some way, well, that won't happen to me. I don't know how many times I've looked in life and go, well, I'm, I'm the exception. And if everybody's the exception, then nobody is. And we have to realize that is that God has set a pattern. He said, hey, this is the majority of people in existence follow these same patterns. We can be wise and learn from it, or we can make the mistakes again, as we're going to see today. We're going to rehash almost all of those things I talked about at the beginning in just this first chapter, introducing the sons of Jacob and their new story. Genesis 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. So it says the generations of Jacob. It doesn't say the generations of Joseph. This whole next account, which is going to be the rest of Genesis, from here on out, is going to be about Jacob's sons. Really focused on Joseph, but a big focus also on Judah. This first chapter is the fall of the rest. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Billah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So, we're already rehashing the issues of favoritism, the issues of choosing one over the other, and the issues of jealousy that come therein. We saw this at the very beginning with Cain and Abel. One was favored over the other, but in this one, this instance, it was an issue of Cain's jealousy because he wasn't doing things correctly. Results in sorrow and pain. We see it happen again with Abraham and his favorite son. It ends up with not only results of sorrow and pain, but the separation of the family and this ongoing conflict now between the Ishmaelites and the Israelites. We see it happen again with Isaac and his children and Rebekah, his wife, with her other son. We see this with Esau. We see this with Jacob and how each of them favored one. And that worked out so great that it ended up with one of them being exiled for 20 years. And here we are all over again with Jacob now favoring Joseph. What could possibly go wrong? 
the pattern we've seen thus far is we have this separation, we have this jealousy or favoritism, and the result is one is a long-term exile. I wonder what's going to happen in our account today. James 2 tells us, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That's the commentary on favoritism. A judge with evil thoughts. We are making distinctions that God says are no longer there. We're to treat everybody equally. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, all your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. He's a wise young man, isn't he? (laughs) His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. That one's going to be important in a minute. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mothers and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. First thing we have here, we have an unwise youth. He's not reading the room. (laughs) They already can't stand you, and now you're going to share something like this. You're not asking the essential questions. You're not considering, he doesn't have Proverbs 18, but I would hope this would already be something taught. From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. When we say something, are we asking the what? What am I saying? Is this profitable in this moment? Is this helpful in the moment? When am I saying it? Timing is everything. So we have this saying in our household because my wife is a discerner. She knows how to find when there is going to be a problem. And so when we're planning something and we're doing something, we're getting something together, and we've been talking about it for months, and tomorrow we're doing whatever it is, that timing is not when to share a problem. Timing is bad. We can't change it at this point. I needed to know this months ago. The discernment is good. Being able to hear is good. Being able to receive correction and insight and wisdom is good. But we also need to have good timing when we're sharing things with people. And perhaps something that they don't want to hear. Timing is even more important. Who are you telling it to? Was it profitable in any way to tell this to his brothers who already are jealous of the favoritism he's receiving when they are all older and they should be receiving, they feel, the preeminence and it's going to him instead. Do they even need to know this? 
I would venture to say no. So what motivation to share it? And which is the why? Why are you saying this? Is this to further provoke somebody? Is this to further pat yourself on the back? Why are you sharing it? And how are you sharing it? If he was considering, hey, I don't really understand what this means. I'm curious by this. Do you? Perhaps he went, would go to his father and share it with him privately and say, I had these dreams. Does, does this actually mean something? Or is this just a flight of fancy? How you go about doing something is important. The words you use are important. They will always be important. The second thing we see here is two complementary dreams, which is the establishment of a pattern. We're going to see later on when somebody dreams something twice, and they're complementary, not the same, they're not identical, but they tell the same story. It's God firmly setting something in place. A few weeks from now, Ty is going to cover much more extensively this area of dreams. I'm not going to get into that all today. So all of your question about dreams. <laughs> and what I found interesting was that his father kept the saying in mind. He didn't just let it bother him, but he considered, does this actually mean something? Because God does speak to people in dreams. Sometimes it's a flight of fancy. Sometimes it's just pizza before you went to bed. But sometimes it's God speaking to us. Out of Numbers 12, it says, And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. God does move this way. God does speak to this this way. And if there's a prophet among us, we have to consider, what is a prophet's role? A prophet's role is to remind and to warn. They're representing God to the people in these contexts. And in our context, they're the ones that are bringing truth back to us, to point us back in the right direction, to give us a forewarning, hey, if we continue this way, it's going to go bad. And so we have to consider, is this more than just a dream? Particularly if it's a recurring one over and over and over again. Take it before the Lord. Take it to someone that's gone before you that might know a little bit more about this. We don't talk about dreams a whole lot anymore. We don't put a whole lot of stock into them, but it doesn't mean that God doesn't still communicate that way. Now his brothers went to pastor their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pastoring the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. Then he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem and a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they've gone away for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into the pits. Then we will, then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what has become of his dreams. This is the results of jealousy. Jealousy will make you do things you never thought you would do. Out of Proverbs 27.4, it says, Wrath is cruel. 
Anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? And to just ponder on that passage for a moment, it's comparing anger and wrath as having nothing against jealousy. That when a person is jealous, there's, there's almost no hope for that, of what it does to a person on the inside, of what we have to war against within that, that we have to guard against within ourselves the jealous spirit over something. And it also, a lot of this warning usually has to do with somebody is um, committing adultery and that, hey, if you do that, a jealous spouse is going to kill you. <laughs> That's usually the comments in there, that you will, there will be nothing you can say to turn back their hand because of the jealous anger that they have. The jealousy within this is so fierce to get to such a point that you'd be willing, in this context, to kill their own brother, their flesh and blood, the child that's been raised up with them all these 17 years. They are so fed up with it. Let's kill him. It's such an extreme place to get to. We have to guard against getting there, of letting something fester, of letting something build year by year by year, to being in a place in our relationships where they're not good, where something can go wrong and it can just go so bad so fast because of jealousy. Proverbs 6 says, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are abomination to him, haughty eyes. I didn't really know exactly what haughty meant so I looked into it. It's this proud or arrogant eyes. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who bears, breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. There's seven for seven. Right within this passage right here. When we consider the Proverbs, when we consider these sayings, they are a reflection on what God has shown us. We can often see what has happened before that it makes this wisdom so clear now. And that we have to be so careful within ourselves to make sure that how we feel or how someone else has behaved does not dictate our response in the way God would have us respond to it. Because it would seem that Joseph hasn't been wise in what he says and does. He's probably been a bratty, proud, arrogant, younger brother who's really enjoying the favoritisms he's been shown by his father up to this point. And they're fed up with it. But does that mean it's now okay to kill him? Probably not. <laughs> but when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. This is such an interesting thing here because now we're rehashing, they've seen, they took what they should not have, what's gonna be the result? sorrow. 
It's the repeated pattern. You see, we take what we shouldn't have, the result will be sorrow. Consider for a moment, they've done this now, they've thrown him in the pit. Best possible scenario, Reuben gets his way here, he rescues him out. Is this gonna be just like, oh, okay, bygones be bygones? No. Joseph will surely let his father know what has been done. This will cause an increased rift between the family. This is going to cause more sorrow and pain because they acted on the impulse in some way. And we also see here the importance of one reasonable voice in a crowd and the necessity therein to be that voice. Out of Proverbs 1, it says, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like shield, let us swallow them alive and whole. Like those who go down to the pit, we shall find all precious goods and shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us, and we'll have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. That's what Reuben's doing. Hey, maybe we shouldn't kill our brother. I know that some of the stories dad has told us of things gone by, that didn't go well when brothers killed each other out of jealousy. Maybe, maybe that's not good. Out of Leviticus 19, it actually says, not only should we not do that, we have a responsibility to stand in the way. Leviticus 19, you should not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall reason frankly with your brother, with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It is our responsibility when we see evil befalling our neighbor, befalling our brother, befalling the sons of our own people, to go to their aid, to not stand idly by and let evil happen to them, to not have apathy. It's really easy to have apathy. It's really easy to shut the curtains, not answer the phone, to say, I've got my own problems to deal with. It's easy in our time to do that. And God's saying, don't Stand up against the life of your neighbor. Don't allow evil to befall them when you could do something to help them. You could stand in that gap for them. Don't make the same mistake. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bringing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. First thing within there, talks about Ishmaelites, talks about Midianites. Is this a typo? Is this an issue? What's going on here? Just as a clarification, the Ishmaelites spread out over the whole southern Negev, 
all the way from basically Egypt to Assyria. And there's a lot of other people groups that are going to be in that area as well. One of the major ones are Midianites, and they would have settled among them. They're considered a subgroup of this people. Out of Judges 8, 22 through 24, we see this. So this is probably just the same group, and they saw, hey, those are Ishmaelites. Oh, and these ones are from Midian, and they sold them to them. And then we have Judah. We have the fall of Judah here. Judah, who is the princely, royal tribe of Israel. Does his actions seem princely or royal in any way here? Not at all. This is the descent of Judah. This is Judah's moral failing, which is going to make his rise so much more significant. That he's willing to take his own brother and say, we won't kill him. Let's just sell him. Let's make money off of this instead. We can actually see later on in Scripture that to do just that receives a death penalty. To kidnap your brother and to sell him, you will be executed for that. The severity of what he's doing, the commentary that Scripture is expecting us to understand within this. So that's what's hard in a lot of these things is that those that would have been reading this or having it accounted to them would have understood the, the law. They would have understood what was expected of people. And they hear Judah, their forefather, doing this and going, what? How could he possibly be redeemed from something like this? And that right there is the amazingness of God. Of that whenever we have that moment, how could they possibly be redeemed from something like this? We remember who we serve. And we remember what he can do with anybody. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. So a little bit of an understanding here. Reuben is the firstborn, and thus he would have been the one who is ultimately responsible for the rest of the family. He's already in bad graces with his father. We read about last week his dalliance with his stepmom. It's already in bad graces. Now he's going to be held responsible for the perishing of his father's favorite son. He's thinking, what on earth am I going to do now that I'm not going to bring back Joseph? Just think for a moment the conversation. We don't get the full conversation. We can consider, we can elaborate, we can say, what were you thinking? Did you think about me at all? What I was going to do at all? Were you just selfish? You sold him for money? What am I going to do now? How am I going to go back to our father? What am I going to tell him? They have to go back to plan one. Well, let's just say he got killed by a wild animal. And here becomes the really the cosmic irony in it. And it's a very familiar recipe of deception. And in a very unfortunate way, it's having Jacob's actions come back upon him. If you look back in Genesis 27, when Jacob deceived his father, Isaac, he deceived him with a robe that was not his own. And he slaughtered a baby goat to deceive him. They're going to deceive their father with a robe that is not their own. They're slaughtering a baby goat to deceive him. It's the little details. 
That is a reminder, hey, this happened before. Hey, this happened before. Hey, this happened before. And it's always bad. They're using a lie to cover up their responsibility. Something so convenient. Because consider the mo- that Joseph, they, they would have no expectation of him ever returning. They've sold him as a slave. He's going to go down there and probably be worked to death down there. We don't ever have to worry about him coming back. And all I have to do is lie. And I don't have to deal with my actions. There will be moments like that in our life. All I have to do is lie a little bit. And I'll never have to deal with it. All I'll ever have to deal with is the fact that I was able to compromise my character and my integrity for the sake of my convenience and not want to be responsible for what I've done. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him to Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. I considered at the very end, because this is the end of our passage, how did it get to this? And I pondered that for a little while. How did it get to this? This is not a problem that happened overnight. This isn't, he just had one dream and they were willing to do this to him over that. This is from 17 years of unequal treatment. 17 years of watching their father favor one wife and one child. Let's rewind, go all the way back about 10 years when Jacob thought Esau was going to come kill him and the whole family. Who did he protect the most with the lives of everybody else? Joseph and Rachel. He put all the other children and all the other mothers in front of them. That experience, just have that experience in your mind. Dad's going to use me to protect them from slaughter. Dad is at the front, but that's not really going to matter if they decide to attack. So that being firm in your mind. And then the rest of your life, dad showing him favoritism. Dad giving him a special coat. Dad setting him in authority over all of us. That is actually an interesting thing. If you want to see how much your children really understand authority, and delegated authority, set the youngest child in charge at some point and see how the other children respond. Now, I'm not saying do that all the time. Clearly, it doesn't go well. But when you watch this happen over and over and over again, probably hearing from their own mothers for years about how this has been unfair, how they haven't been treated well or equally, the resentment therein, and it builds, and it builds, and it builds, and it builds. And it's easy to find yourself in that place. And so what's going to stop the cycle? What's going to stop this from happening over 
and over and over again. Because we just watched three generations, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, do it again and again and again. The same mistake that causes the same sorrow, the same results, how do we stop? Because it's not going to be the same with everybody. It's not going to be the same with everyone's family. You're going to have different besetting sins that you deal with. How do you stop? How do you make sure that this doesn't go to the next generation? And it stops with you, with God. Most importantly, with God. God has a specific plan for all of humanity. He always has. That's the lesson from the beginning in the garden. It was meant to be you with God, walking with Him, learning from Him, knowing Him day by day. Out of Matthew 22, it says, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these Two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You love in order to break this cycle. You love God with everything, first and foremost over everything. And you love your neighbor as you would love yourself. That's what breaks the cycle. And we have to define love the way that God does. At a 1 Corinthians 13, it says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Imagine for just a moment if the whole world did just that. Just that. What would the world be? Now that's a big ask. So I would ask something different. Imagine if just all those that follow Christ did just that. What would the world be? How do we get there? Where does the change begin? It begins with you. It begins with me, with God. Would you stand with us?